Local voices, local conversations. You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com. Thanks for joining us here at NapaBroadcasting.com. While the nation's economy is strong, look around at agricultural towns across America, even towns and cities with 50 or even 150,000 people. Often in these agricultural towns, you see boarded-up main streets, higher levels of poverty, opioid addiction, etc. Yet here in our agricultural community, the economy is thriving. Employment is high, wages are rising, building and business creation are at record levels. It's in part because Napa County had the foresight to put in place very strict controls that segregated ag from the cities, that created the ag preserve and elevated agriculture to the highest and best use of the land. In exchange, those in the agricultural business accepted regulations that are some of the most stringent and severe of any agricultural region in the country. It's been a delicate balance, and up until this point, it has worked. In the past, attempts like Measure O have attempted to upset that balance. The wisdom of the voters prevailed, though. Once again, though, in the form of Measure C, the initiative process is being used to potentially impact that delicate balance. What does this mean from a policy perspective, from a political perspective, and from an economic one? We're going to talk about that today in the broader context of Measure C with three guests that have been kind enough to join me in the studio today. We're joined by Jerry Hansen, who is a member of the Napa County Planning Commission, the Director of Sustainable Napa Valley, by Dave Whitmer, who spent 20 years as Napa County's Ag Commissioner, and by Phil Blake, whose work in the resource conservation area has been legendary and vital to Napa County. It is my pleasure to welcome all three of them here to Napa Broadcasting. Jerry, Dave, Phil, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Jeff. It's good to be here. Great to have you here. Dave, I want to start with you because you've spent so many years looking at all of this as as Ag Commissioner and probably have as as strong a grasp as as anybody on, on all of these issues. When you look at Measure C and what it sets out to do with respect to watershed, oak woodland, et cetera, what is, and I think this is confusing to a lot of people, what is it trying to do? What is the problem it's trying to solve? You know, you go talk to people in any business, you know, Silicon Valley being perhaps the penultimate example, and they will tell you that, you know, anything that's going to be successful has to be there to solve a problem. What is the problem that this is trying to solve? <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> it doesn't seem like um, there, there is a problem, Jeff, at, not, at least not one that's been identified uh, to me. Um, I, I don't see the science uh, supporting the uh, Measure C, and I think it's ill-conceived. I think it's confusingly writ. I think the language is uh, is very ambiguous, um, and, I, and I just don't see a problem. It, 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 what one of the things that, in my experience in working with the local ag industry and the ag industry groups, if there is a need for us to change something that we're doing, uh, increase regulations perhaps, uh, to deal with uh, healthier watershed, creating healthier watersheds, or, um, or trying to somehow make a water quality better. What I've seen is individuals stepping up, and particularly around these um, uh, sustainable programs that are out there that, that many of these uh, viticulturalists and, and wineries are participating in. Napa Green Program is one such example. These are, these are great programs, and, but they're voluntary. And, and one of the things that I think uh, Phil would probably 
uh, agree with me on is you can you can take out regulations and you can try and and have one size fits all, but the land and managing land requires this um, on the ground kind of evaluation, and it really should be uh, the 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 things that are done on the land should be focused on that particular parcel. And we've seen time and again, if, if, if growers are given the opportunity to do that kind of program, and they go well beyond any regulatory structure that you can put together. Um, I, I just don't understand where this is coming from other than the you know, kind of overall overarching thing that we're all looking at, and that is climate change and, and reducing uh, trees in our environment is, is certainly something that a lot of people are looking at. Um, but in terms of what we've done in Napa County and what we need to do, I, I don't see this as a fix of anything. In many ways, Jerry, it comes across almost as an attack on what has always been the highest and best use of land in this valley, which is agriculture. Yes, and um, uh, one of the things that Dave mentioned is the broader issues that we are dealing with as a community that I believe we all agree are important to have discussions about and find solutions for. We're hearing that people are concerned about traffic and congestion, about um, affordable housing, about greenhouse gas emission reductions, and all the um, and energy use and water conservation and all the things that we could really focus our time and thinking on. And uh, back to what Dave said, this is not good policy. Good policy is based on science and facts and by its very nature seeks to solve a problem. And what we cannot yet identify is what is that problem. And I think if this is a reflection of a broader frustration with agriculture and the wine industry, then let's talk about it. But don't attempt to use this as a wedge between this community to force a vision that a small number of people have because they do not understand that agriculture is a working landscape. It is messy, it's noisy, it can be inconvenient for us, but it is not a backdrop for you to have your morning cup of coffee to. It is something that is working here in this valley. This is our economy. This is our community. We have said over and over again that agriculture is the highest and best use of the land. And I see no need to back up and step away from that. It's the very foundation of how we have built our community and the way it has grown, and I will say very slowly. Uh, I saw a picture yesterday from the Ag Preserve celebration uh, side by side of Napa Valley now, uh, then in 1950 or, or whatever it was, and then now, same time frame of Santa Clara, completely different, completely different. The Santa Clara now is full of houses. And so um, I, I think that this is a, uh, it's a workaround, it's a frustration, it's a release valve for um, the ire and the, and the, uh, you know, the, the pain points that I think our community it should be talking about, but this is not a solution to anything that I'm hearing is a problem. And Phil, I want to talk about the bad policy aspect of it that, that Jerry touched on, because if we look at the state of our river, the state of the watersheds, the state of, what the, of, of water here in the Napa Valley, things are arguably better now, cleaner now, than they have at any given point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jeff, I got here in 1982, and in, in that time, uh, agriculture was largely unregulated in terms of conversions 
of land. We had a lot of changes going on in the Carneros. The dairies were going out and uh, vineyards were replacing them. Prunes and dairies had been in that area historically. In the hillside areas, uh, Keith Bowers, it used to be uh, uh, with the Cooperative Extension uh, Farm Advisor, really uh, wise gentleman, uh, he gave a talk at a seminar we had in 1983 on developing hillside vineyards and the, the right ways and the wrong ways to do it. And Keith said, you know, these hillside lands, historically, it was the Italian and some of the other European, the poorer immigrants that went to the hills and set up their farms and their homesteads. And these were the areas that were pioneered uh, uh, by them in the uh, mid to uh, late 1800s. And in that time period, they were planting orchards and vineyards and obviously even raising row crops in these areas. And uh, so this is nothing new. And of course, you look at the fact that uh, a lot of the, it was very interesting, the, the register article on stone bridges mm -hmm. uh, that was put out a couple of weeks ago. Why were the stone bridges built? There was a lack of timber to build bridges for the horses and buggies to traverse over uh, because the uh, hillsides and mountainsides had largely been logged off. There are really interesting articles in the Anglin area, people lamenting the loss of the forests. And uh, you fast forward to the period that we're in now, and uh, you would think that these had been forever virgin landscapes that are being trampled upon uh, not only uh, uh, severely in this, given this apocalyptic picture that's being painted, but that it's only getting worse and it's only going to logarithmically increase uh, could not be further from the truth. It's, it's simply not happening. Jerry, talk a little bit about the general plan, and you may, were talking before about the slowness of development and, and the pace to it. It certainly has been consistent with the general plan and, and still appears to be going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the general plan, um, as uh, uh, most know, uh, was updated in 2008, and it projects through 2030. And it is, uh, you know, it's part policy, part crystal ball just based on what we know now to be true and what we expect to be true in the future based on what we know now and the projections in the general plan are tracking and we are um, at or below the time frame and the acreage that has been projected for for vineyard development um, I think that uh, they projected somewhere near maybe 10,000 acres total being uh, converted to vineyards in the general plan, um, and we are sitting right now at somewhere around 4,600 acres permitted, not developed, but that's permitted, and that is tracking with the general plan. So the general plan, not only the plan, but the process was community-based, transparent, very comprehensive. It wasn't always easy. It was, uh, you know, there were disagreements, but there were also compromises, and I think everyone felt like at the end of the day, they got a policy document that truly became our guidepost and our guiding document to to plan ahead like we do. And it really did, again, reaffirm that agriculture is the highest and best use of that land. land. This measure flies in the face of the general plan. It, in fact, conflicts with it in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, there is no, uh, we can't figure out some of the formulas used to reach this 795 magic number where that came from. Um, so the general plan has, is, again, what we use to uh, 
figure out how we would like to grow and how slowly and at what pace and where it should go. Um, it also includes all the other elements like circulation and housing and transportation and economy and um, it really knits together all of those pieces that do integrate. And this is a very narrow sliver of a very narrow perceived problem, when in fact we already have a document that tells us exactly how they all connect and what we could be working on. And, and Jeff, you know, I'd like to comment here. Sure. The, uh, you know, the county of Napa has r what, roughly 500,000 acres of land within the county boundary. Um, r last time I looked, the the planted vineyard acreage was somewhere in the neighborhood of 45,000 acres, mm -hmm. maybe a little bit more than that. Yep. So we're talking about less than 10% of the land of Napa County that's in vineyard. Th there isn't an endless supply of locations in the county where, where vineyard can be planted. There isn't anything, and correct me if I'm wrong, Phil, nothing that goes in slopes that are greater than 30%. There's Correct. A, there's That's a right. moratorium on that. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about slopes from zero to 30. There aren't very many slopes that are being planted that are on the, the upper end of that. This is, just isn't a very large problem that we're describing in terms of how many acres are left to plant here. Right. Talk a little bit about, Dave, the existing regulations that relate to all of these issues that are already in place, that have worked well, that have had, as we were talking with Phil before, a positive impact. Right. And, and beyond that, beyond how much we were already regulated, the danger that Measure C poses to the existing regulations. Well, the, the, uh, the existing regulations for planting vineyards in Napa County are probably the most onerous regulations that agriculture faces anywhere in the United States, if not the world. Yep. So we already have a, a set of regulations in place, and you know, largely due to f folks with boots on the ground like Phil who, and, and others who have looked at, at the, the latest uh, scientific evidence, and they're science-based um, regulations as opposed to what Measure C would present. Um, there's a, if you're on a slope of, of 5%, and, and Jeff, we might be on 5% slope here in your studio, <laughs> it, it's not very much if you really look at what 5% slope looks and feels like. But anything from 5% up to this 30% requires an engineered erosion control plan that's, that's highly technical, and costly to a landowner, in order, mm -hmm. but, it, but it's, it's good policy, and it's proven over time to reduce soil erosion and, and sedimentation um, mm -hmm. into the creeks and, and streams. So th this initiative begins to set up uh, new setback requirements for class one, two, three streams and wetlands. And, and part of the problem is, um, s some of these definitions that are be that are current in the current set of regulations, the planners that that are working with landowners are very very aware of these setbacks and what the requirements are. But 
but you blend you begin to blend new initiative language into the existing regulations and i think this is going to cause uh, the the planners who have to implement this this program some great concerns as as blend is a kind word well okay <laughs> crash might be well, I, wa- I want to talk about that but first jerry i want to talk about the, the impact and, and we talked about the general plan the impact on agriculture because the case has been made that what this initiative is calling for is really antithetical to the idea of agriculture in the valley. It's it's interesting to me that um, an initiative specifically targets agriculture in an agricultural zone, but yet it does not target other uses like residential development or even winery development. And so I'm left wondering what the motives are. If we are attacking farming in agricultural zones, then what have we left in those zones? And it's um, it's an interesting question. What do we want to see in our community? What do we want to see our community looking like in 10, 15, 20 years? And this is one of those, um, I hate the slippery slope analogy because I think it, it does not uh, take into account our own ability to discern the differences. But this is one of those cases where uh, I am I am really uh, confounded as to what this accomplishes. What it does do is restrict farming and agriculture in agricultural zones, and I find that deplorable. And is it really, I mean, can you make the case that this is the camel's nose under the proverbial tent, that today we want to try and stop farming and tomorrow we want to stop any other kind of development? And that this isn't really about the streams or the watershed or protecting anything, that it's really about a a backwards way, a hidden way, a kind of Trojan horse way to stop development that people are unhappy with. I would never uh, venture to guess what someone else's internal dialogue is or the intent, but you ask very good questions, and I am also asking those same questions is, what is the rationale behind this and what is the ultimate outcome? What's the ultimate motive that is guiding this effort? And is there one, two, three more behind it? Phil, I want to talk about the specifics of it because above and beyond all of these broad issues, and and I think some of you have mentioned this, that it's bad policy, that if you look at what this 18-page initiative says, there are things in there that are just bad for the environment. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, one instance of that or one example would be uh, the stream setbacks they propose. They, uh, without getting into detail that would uh, glaze many's eyes over, <laughs> they use a stream classification system, class one, two, and three, which is a state of California designation that the state has used for decades to help uh, set up what or determine what jurisdictional areas are for uh, fish and Game, or currently known as California Department of Fish and Wildlife, and the state uh, forestry folks who are now CAL FIRE uh, to determine, you know, for forestry things and for jurisdictional things on creeks, who has jurisdiction and where it begins. Uh, these things have come back to us before. Uh, measures O and P in uh, 2004 attempted this as well. Very arcane strange processes, but the, the, the bottom line and to simplify this thing is uh, let's look at uh, class three streams. Class three streams are the headwater streams. These are the streams that begin at the top of the watershed. This is where it all starts. 
and the watersheds or catchments that feed these areas are are generally tens of acres in size, so fairly small. So uh, picture these streams. There are um, swales, uh, little concave uh, cavities in the hillsides that are working their way down uh, through the landscape, and these areas uh, then start feeding uh, into uh, areas of hundreds of acres of size, and at that point you may have frogs and amphibians, you know, uh, reptiles like uh, the western pond turtle, some of the other animals that uh, there's not enough water there to uh, sustain uh, fisheries, but uh, these other uh, wildlife species can uh, function there. Then, of course, the class one, which would include the Napa River and some of the main creeks, uh, the very lowest waters of those 42 tributaries that feed the Napa River, for instance. So these setbacks that they've established, they uh, begin uh, smaller in the headwater areas and gets larger, working your way to the class one. But the class three is the most interesting example because that's the most common, and that's the one that impacts virtually every ag watershed parcel in this county. And those streams uh, with their 35-foot setback, well, if you look at our current regulations, you're pretty much starting at about 55 feet and going up from there. This initiative uh, largely is uh, states that it's to protect water quality and uh, stream integrity. And how are we doing that if we're actually taking the current conservation regulations and saying, oh, it's way too much. Let's make them 35 feet. But then everybody else down in the valley, class one, class two streams, uh, which are lesser setbacks because the land is flatter, because the potential for erosion to, to deposit in these streams is less. Uh, these are 75 foot for the class twos and 125 feet for the class ones. Uh, well, interestingly enough, uh, with the incongruity of this whole thing, let's take a look at some of the folks who are signatories uh, for, uh, uh, or proponent signatories for Measure C. I'm not going to name names, and every one of these people, uh, they'll see them on the ballots. They've seen their letters to the editor. They've seen their signatures. I have great respect for all of them. I know them. I've walked their vineyards. I, I know the landscapes of the areas. They farm quite well. These 75 and 100-foot, 125-foot setbacks on Class One and Two streams, those folks uh, have vineyards in those areas for sure, and some of them quite a few. The average setback that they are utilizing on their vineyards is probably 20 to 30 feet. You can check that. You can go on Google Earth now, use a little measuring tool. Take, take, take a look at some of those vineyards out there. And what it says to me is uh, these setbacks are for everybody else but me. That's, that's, a, uh, that's a significant concern, should be a significant concern to anybody. Jeff, one of the things that uh, that is changed by Measure C and and uh, and the current regulations, the current regulations don't exempt uh, replants. Uh, right. Measure C actually exempts replants. So if you've established a vineyard, um, you don't have to go back and and redo this. And I I don't I don't see how that improves water quality. 
One of the other areas where there seems to be inconsistency is that I, I have a hard time figuring out how this initiative flies in the face of Measure J. Talk about that. Well, m you know, Measure J has um, has been on the books by initiative process. The voters were very wise to say, hey, we want to take away the decision of any uh, boards of supervisors that might come together and, and their ability to change the um, the land use uh, w within these agricultural areas. And, and what we've done is we've set aside uh, the Ag Watershed and Open Space District for agriculture. We, we know that agriculture has always been the highest and best use of the land. But the assault on Measure J that happens as a result of, of this initiative, Measure C, is that it begins to change that. And as Jerry said, it begins to say, nope, you can't have agriculture in the agriculture watershed and open space dis zoning district. But if you can fit a home, a winery, or other structure around the trees and you're not taking out trees, then you can build those structures. Those are permitted. They don't, the, the initiative doesn't speak to that. But it, it, so it takes away this, this uh, sense that we have of protecting these hillsides um, and these hillside areas where feasible and where the regulations allow it to plant vineyards and have reasonable set of regulations that actually uh, do uh, prevent the, the, the problems with water quality. I don't know who, which one of you wants to speak to this, but one of the other issues that has been raised is the impact of this, particularly in light of what we just went through with the fires mm -hmm. and what was destroyed in those fires, and really as it addresses what's becoming clearer and clearer as new ways of looking at dealing with forestry in, in these day, this day and age. Phil, you want to start with that? Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a very important point, Jeff. Yeah, in, in uh, early October, we uh, in the uh, three major fires that ran through here, uh, we lost a total of, I think it was about 62,000 acres of land burned. Much of that land was oak woodland. Uh, much of it was virtually absolutely destroyed. A lot of it was damaged. It'll be hard to uh, tell exactly uh, what the rate of damage is, but certainly the watersheds have been severely, severely impacted, far more than any other activity that uh, goes on as a planned activity in this county. And uh, you take a look at the Greg Giusti used to be, uh, uh, he gave a talk right after the fire. He and I were on a panel with the university giving a talk on the uh, on fire remediation. And uh, Greg mentioned uh, added up and we've got probably something over 17 million oaks that were destroyed or severely damaged in this fire. How, how do we deal with it? How do we assess uh, the uh, restoration of these oaks? Well, isn't it interesting that this initiative comes forward at a time where the obvious most important focus, the, the watersheds and the oak woodlands that need to be restored just simply replanted and, and brought back again in the tens of thousands of acres. We're talking about um, as soon as we hit 795 acres and people are going to start needing to do some of these uh, remediation practices which are not terribly effective. Mm -hmm. I work with these all the time in my environmental consulting. There are requirements that need to be done to basically take disturbed areas and make sure that they uh, 
are restocked. Uh, but the requirements of this initiative uh, with a three to one, what does a three to one mean versus a two to one? Um, you got to have, you have to monitor it for five years. You have to have 80% survival. What, are, what we're doing when we start pushing these things and citizens start saying, well, let's make it bigger, let's make it wider, uh, there's no logic to that when you're actually, in all likelihood, overstocking these areas, creating low ladder fuels that are the initial fuels that help to ignite and, and um, instigate these fires. Uh, you're planting these areas when we have 60-some thousand areas of devastated land. But here's the thing. The, there are programs out there. This, this county is not only the most regulated county in the world, it's, it's also a county with more volunteer organizations and more programs and possibilities for people to participate in. And let me tell you, the agriculturalists are are carrying the heavy load on this one. They're the majority of the folks doing that out there. But but the, the, the other part of the fuel loading issue is CAL FIRE that used to be uh, CDF, uh, Division of Forestry. These folks for years, when I first got here, we had a program called the um, uh, Fuel Load Reduction Program. It was done through uh, um, prescribed burning that went by the wayside to do to, due to some environmental regulations with air quality and pretty much most of the Bay Area now is pretty limited in what it can do. But these are fires that are carried uh, in the wintertime under wet conditions where everything's under control and you're actually mimicking what used to be there prior to settlement when the weather and the climate uh, lightning strikes, things started these fires that kept the fuel loads. Even the Native Americans practiced this when the first missionaries came into Napa County. They saw the hills ablaze. These are things that CAL FIRE would love to have the ability legislatively to come back and do again to prevent this kind of devastation, to loss of homes, property, oak woodlands, uh, but they're very limited in being able to do that. Why should we be taking uh, a measure like this and focusing only on these minimal agricultural impacts on the land and totally disregarding uh, the, pro the real problem out there with oak woodlands? Jerry well, mentioned, well, excuse me, Jeff, uh, Jerry mentioned the 795 figure, and, and that's a, a, a number of acres of oak removal that that um, is is allowed under uh, under Measure C before um, the permit is required for the removal of of you know just a couple of oak trees that are five inches in diameter. This this uh, but it goes back the date if this passes in June, the date at which you begin to count the number of oak trees that have been removed goes back to September before the fire before the fire and so by my read of this the 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 loss of oak trees during the fire would certainly be included in that number and so we've already on June 5th if this passes we've hit that 795 plus and so you want to do anything on your property of one acre or more you're going to need to have a permit to do it and ironically, the proponents are saying, oh, no, it won't. Well, if this thing passes, the proponents 
it's the county. The proponents lose. The proponents aren't sitting there on the sidelines saying, "Okay, here's what we meant. Here's how the county needs to carry this out." It it's should, in the county's hands. It should be pointed <laughs> out that there is already an Oak Woodland management plan that yes. the county has in place. Yes. You want yes. to talk about that? Well, we do. Uh, that was a, to the point about voluntary programs and right. and those in agriculture and natural resources and open space. Uh, who, you know, who are are um, supporting that have so many ways to um, help our local environment and, and enhance our natural resources. So the Oak Woodlands uh, replanting is one. There's voluntary programs through the RCD, the Acorns to Oaks program. Mm -hmm. There is Napa Green. There is Land Smart. There's um, so many other uh Progressive, successful, innovative, the Rutherford Dust Innovate, Restoration the Rutherford Project, Restoration, the yeah. Oakville Napa River Restoration Fish Friendly Project. Farming, and which is mm -hmm, Napa right. Green. Um, there are so many above and beyond regulatory programs that, as Dave mentioned, if you give someone the opportunity to be site specific and customize uh, management of a parcel or of a of a piece of land based on what that piece of land needs and responds to and is you know suitable, they will go above and beyond compliance nearly every single time. And so back to our rigorous environmental regulations already in place, we also um, have great programs that allow our growers and uh, farmers to go above and beyond, and, and they do. Jeff, I was, I was just going to say, as you know, this conversation progresses, uh, I sit here and I reflect on, on how complicated it is, how, how much science there is in it, how uh, this, this process that we've created of, regul of, of regulatory oversight of what we allow on these lands, um, this is not simple stuff, and it's, it's very highly technical. Um, an initiative process is simply the wrong legislative vehicle for something like a, a regulatory program controlling agricultural production. As a regulator for, for over 20 years, I know that you need to, to be able to tweak regulatory programs as they progress. And the initiative process will not allow for for any tweaking of this program if this passes. It'll have to go back to the initiative process and be voted on by voters as to whether you ought to tweak this thing if it passes. Wrong way to legislate from my perspective, Jeff. They're not going to want to look at it again. What are, <laughs> voters are going to be pretty worn out. Yeah. What are, if, if anybody has looked at this, the legal ramifications of this? Because one of the things that we've talked about here is so many inconsistencies mm -hmm. between Measure C as written and the general plan, the conservation ordinances that already exist, the ag regs that already exist. Given those contradictions, it seems to me it's a legal minefield. Well, it is a legal minefield. The, the 9111 report that was commissioned by the Board of Supervisors, um, if you read that report, it indicates that, that uh, Almost certainly this will be challenged if it's enacted. Uh, that means the county of Napa will have to defend it in court. And as we've been talking, there's many parts of this that are, you know, frankly not defensible. The language is ambiguous. If anything I know, if you're going to roll a, a new law out, that ought to be pretty clear language. It ought to be un indisputable as to what the words mean. This is full of, of language that's ambiguous. 
will end up in, in many court battles. But there's another side of, of the legal process. This creates a, a, a misdemeanor if an unsuspecting landowner actually ends up taking oaks uh, down on their property, think they're doing the right thing, or they have a project that they want to complete, and they end up getting caught with that. It's an automatic misdemeanor. And, and what it really does is it invades this, this idea that we have about due process. Uh, if, if there's a, a regulation that gets violated, you should be given the opportunity to, by the regulatory agency to know that you violated that and to respond and an opportunity to be heard. There is none of that that exists in here. It's a flat-out misdemeanor to the individual, and it ends up going in, into a, a, a regulatory and enforcement process. I'm not sure that, um, that folks in Napa County really understand mm -hmm. that. One of the arguments that the proponents of this have made repeatedly is that that this is necessary in their view because of the lax enforcement of some of these county and existing regulations we've been talking about. You want, Jerry, you want to address sure. that? Sure. Um, I, you know, back to our rigorous environmental laws that we do have in place. Um, if enforcement is indeed a concern, then let's take a look at the current rigorous environmental regulations that we have in place that we feel are not doing the job that they were set out to do. Do they need to be updated based on new science and new um, new things that we have learned about how we interact with our environment? Um, are there areas where they can be improved? Are there things that no longer no longer relate to how, how we operate here? So we do need to take a look at those if that is hmm the true concern. If enforcement is the issue, this does nothing to address enforcement because if the concern is that those who might flout the law are flouting the laws that we already have, this is just one other ambiguous, misleading, confusing law for them to go around. And so we have still an enforcement problem. So if we would like to talk about enforcement as a policy at the county level, at the community level, and figure out how we can meet those concerns, address those concerns, and alleviate those concerns, then let's do that. But this measure does not do that. And let's let's look at that on a narrow level. This, this is very important. A lot, a lot of the enforcement stuff that Jerry's talking about, as we know from what we read in the paper and, and the planning commission meetings that, that Jerry participates in, have to do with wineries, use mm -hmm. permits, commercial uses of the land. This measure doesn't really address those at all. It only, it's only really focused on agriculture. I can speak from the standpoint as a person that prepares these uh, conservation regulations, vineyard erosion control plans. I've been doing it since 1991. I continue to do it in my retirement or post-retirement as a part-time uh, <laughs> environmental advisor and planner, do a lot of agricultural projects. There is zero, no tolerance for agricultural projects out there that are in violation. Every one of these conservation regulations plans, you meet a minimum of five, six times with county personnel. They walk the land, they go out, they measure the trees, they look at your maps, they want the tree survey, the biological survey, the net, no net runoff survey, the wetlands, the streams. They t bring their tape measure out, they say, 
let's, uh, are you sure that's right? There could be a foot off. I mean, this is, these are the gnat's eyebrow kinds of things we're talking about. This is what the vineyards are, are uh, up against in terms of what's expected of them. There's some of these areas where there are absolute total prohibitions on, uh, Dave mentioned slopes. There's water limitations. There's areas where uh, you, you can't plant an acre of vineyard because you're in a sensitive subwatershed or the groundwater studies aren't sufficient to show that there's sufficient groundwater to plant that vineyard. The county has intricate formulas on how much water a vineyard is allowed to consume, and we don't consume much water, as Dave knows. Right. Our vineyards are vastly under-irrigated compared to the rest of California's vineyards and the world's agriculture. It's, it's, it's a drop in the bucket. Um, but agriculture, the things you hear in the paper about vineyard projects, uh, there's one up valley, I believe, where they imported some soil and uh, did some very flagrant things that the county caught them on immediately and didn't let them go on. Uh, there, there has been zero tolerance for uh, that uh, vineyard development. Why is it that we see a few of these things, uh, the Walt Ranch constantly coming back as this poster child of the, the evil Darth Vader industry that's out there? Uh, it's, it, in terms of um, enforcement, the county is rigidly, rigidly uh, memos every year, five-year monitoring period. You have to be, they go out and they measure that cover crop. They me measure the distance between the vine rows. They measure whether you put the compost down. They look, I have to take pictures of the cover crop and specify that it's been mowed to the proper height. I mean, these are incredibly intense regulations. And uh, if your annual inspection shows that you're uh, deficient in any of those, you got to redo it. You got to go back and fix it immediately. There's there's zero tolerance for agricultural development. Given what Phil is saying, and Dave and Jerry both, maybe you can answer this. How did we get here? How did we get to a perception in parts of the community that runs a hundred percent counter, hundred eighty percent counter to what what Phil is saying? This perception that that regulation has run amok and that nobody's watching the store. And, and there is this perception that that's the case when, in fact, it clearly isn't. Because I think that oftentimes the 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 facts and the truth can be uh, too long of a story to digest because we want 140 characters and that's it. Um, it can be boring. It's not exciting. It isn't um, on the 11 o'clock news. Uh, it takes some time and some understanding and some dialogue to really appreciate the level of intensity that Phil is talking about with the, the regulations. And I would say that for the most part that our vineyard uh, owners and, and um, vineyard managers gladly go through because it creates better wine quality. I mean, we have a very, um, we also have a very world-class reputation here for fine wines, and that's no mistake. I mean, that has everything to do with how we manage the land. It's like having a, a, a really beautiful car and then, you know, not changing the oil or checking the tires or, you know, we have an investment. So if you look at it from the economic perspective, all of these practices are actually helping the vines, helping the land, helping the wine quality, which is really what we're talking about here. So um, I think people are impatient with listening to the, the longer version of the facts. And um, it's easier to, to point to something that is outside of yourself that 
expresses a frustration that you might have about a great unnamed uh, reason for that frustration, let's just point to the biggest thing that we can find. And in our community, that happens to be agriculture, and it happens to be the wine industry. In other communities, it could be uh, tomatoes. In other communities, it could be making cars, or it could be making beer, or it could be producing whatever it is that, you know, the, uh, a micro, uh, a chip. Um, so it really is about, I think there is a community level frustration that think of things that we all share, but it's not as easy as pointing to the biggest target. And one of the things we're really missing here is the state of California. The the Regional Water Quality Board last July enacted the basin plan for the Napa River and for uh, Sonoma Creek watersheds. And all vineyards, not just proposed vineyards, all vineyards now require uh, plans, ranch or farm plans, farm plans mm -hmm. that look at not only the vineyards, uh, but also the roads and the roads as sediment sources to the creeks. They have their own set of stream setbacks. We already have the conservation reg setbacks, which I think are quite adequate, and, and those are based on science. And then you have uh, the water boards, which are based on the fish-friendly farming uh, mm -hmm. concepts that were put forward. Uh, so you've got a couple of things that are uh, sometimes complementing, sometimes colliding there. And then Measure C adds this whole massive layer on top of it that once again creates this kind of triplicate reg regulation situation. Uh, where are the rural residential properties in this whole thing? A lot of the folks that put this measure together live in those areas. They don't want to see any more vineyards in their neighborhood. I get that. I understand that. But when you look at the regional water quality report that established the uh, water quality impairment problem of the Napa River, the studies they did between 94 and 2004 showed that overall in the Napa River watershed, Vineyards in combination with grazing land contribute 26.4% of the fine sediment to the system. The rest of those 75, 76% uh, or so sediment loads, yearly annual sediment loads that were budgeted are stream bank erosion coming down from the tributaries into the Napa River and rural residential properties unregulated in Measure C, unregulated by the Regional Water Quality Control Board unless you're doing a development plan and you come under stormwater uh, pollution prevention plans, uh, which are common now if you're disturbing more than an acre with your driveway in your home. People are coming into that regulation, but by and large Measure C says, oh, um, does that exist? Is that really a problem? This is the classic, I'm cold, so you put on a sweater. You know, Jeff, your, your original question was, you know, why is it that people are are lashing out? Uh, I think it's fear. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a fear of change. Uh, we're all dealing with so much change, and people don't want to see their environment change. Um, I also think that, um, you know, I, I worked for the county in the agriculture department for 33 years. And one of the things that I saw continually come up over and over again was agriculture's the bad guy. Agricul we've got stories about agriculture that go back millennial. You know, I mean, it's like um, 
how, how many uh, times do, do people point to agriculture being the bad guy because it's the easy target? And I think Jerry's right. If you really want to get in, in, you know, into the nuts and bolts of this thing, you've got to do some study. You've got to do some reading because the information's there, but people aren't willing to, to really look at what, what's causing the problems here. Uh, as was stated earlier, I'm hearing that traffic is a big problem. I'm hearing that housing is a critical need here in the community. Why aren't we spending time and energy and money on the things that we all are, we all know are the problems we need to be solving. Why are we spending our time, energy, and money on something that has not been defined as to why that there is even a problem that needs to be fixed? I'm, I, I'm at a loss. Hashtag blame agriculture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. it's always been that way. It always will be that way. And what you'll hear is, well, I know a guy in, you know, Nebraska that, yeah. you know, <laughs> that ended up polluting the land. Well, okay, great. Uh, you know, sorry that happened. But what does that have to do with us? Right. We've got some of the most forward-thinking people uh, involved in the wine industry here. This isn't a place where the product, the pro people are putting their name on the product. Mm -hmm. And that makes a difference in terms of, you know, if you're going and you're producing bulk tomatoes, your name as the farmer really isn't on that, right? But the farmers around here are putting their name on the label. The vineyard matters. And what, what, you know, what I find just incredible is that there's this sense that there's all this wrongdoing out there. I didn't see it as you know when in the ag commissioner's position for 20 years what i saw was what phil described is people make trying to make an honest living trying trying their very best to take care of their land uh in and deal with the specific issues that they're dealing with in their vineyards and doing the best they can with it and we'll leave it there dave whitmer jerry hansen gill phil blake thanks so much for coming in thank, thank, you, thank jeff. you thanks jeff you're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com, Napa Valley Radio for the way we live now.